This is Hamlet to Hamilton, Exploring Verse Drama. I'm your host, Emily C.A. Snyder. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 2, Content Dictates Form, because even Shakespeare gals love themselves a little sometime. To be. To be. not to be. To be or not to be. That is the question. Or not. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Hamlet to Hamilton, exploring verse drama. In the previous episodes, we took a look at what the definition of verse drama might mean, and then specifically the difference between prose and verse as forms. Today, what I want to talk about is when we should be writing in verse. What are the stories that want to be told in verse? And in point of fact, really, any story can be told in verse, just like any story could be a musical, or any story could be a film, or a play, or an audio drama, or a Zoom production. But the question is, what is the best way to present your story? This particular episode, I'm going to be speaking especially to those of you with a musical theater background. If you don't have a musical theater background, I hope that what I have to say still translates insofar as hopefully you've seen a musical or two or a musical episode or two. Uh, And so hopefully you have some basis. And if you have examples that I may have missed, please drop them in the comments. Again, I would love to grow this community and I would love to know what I don't know. So please educate me. So the question is, when is the tool of writing in verse helpful? And as we've talked before, Verse itself is a great way to express complex ideas. It's a great way to express uh, complex emotion, just like musical theater. It's a great way to show regularity. If uh, It's a very strictured world. If you want something extremely metric, there are loads of reasons. Uh, perhaps someone is just incredibly florid. One of your characters may just be... A, be extra. And before we go on, I actually think that Stephen Sondheim, who's a very well-known lyricist, pardon me, very well-known lyricist and composer, you may know him from Into the Woods, uh, is one of his more famous and certainly accessible pieces. If you haven't studied Sondheim yet, I would go and watch Into the Woods first. And if you're going to watch a version, please watch the Broadway version with Bernadette Peters as the witch before you watch the more recent version um, that was done as a movie and it really chopped up the the play a lot. And while it's an interesting adaptation, if, if you're going to have your first experience, treat yourself to Bernadette Peters. So Stephen Sondheim, this is what he writes at the beginning of the first volume of his collected lyrics. Now, Stephen Sondheim himself was the protege of Oscar Hammerstein, and you might know that name if you've heard of Oklahoma or The King and I or The Sound of Music. He was the lyricist for all three, and he took Stephen Sondheim under his wing and taught him all he knew. Stephen Sondheim has gone on to become one of the premier musical theater geniuses of the past century, and he collected all his lyrics. This particular volume is called Finishing the Hat. It's expensive, but if you're interested in lyric writing, 
it's absolutely worth it. And I'm going to read to you his preface because I think it's important. So he writes, there are only three principles necessary for a lyric writer, all of them familiar truisms. And even before I go on, I'm going to pause. A lyric in this case is verse or poetry that is written for the purpose of being sung. So if we say that poetry is the overall form, and within that you have uh, individual poems, you have epic poems, you have rap poems, you have dramatic verse, you have narrative verse, and you have lyrics. So he's, in this particular case, talking about lyrics, which is poetry that is meant to be set to music. And he says, again, there are only three principles necessary for a lyric writer, all of them familiar truisms. They were not immediately apparent to me when I started writing, but I've come into focus via Oscar Hammerstein's tutoring, Strunk and White's huge little book, The Elements of Style, and my own 60-some years of practicing the craft. I've not always been skilled or diligent enough to follow them as faithfully as I would like, but they underlie everything I've ever written, in no particular order, and to be written in stone. Content dictates form. Less is more. God is in the details. All in the service of clarity, without which nothing else matters. If a lyric writer observes this mantra rigorously, he can turn out a respectable lyric. If he also has a feeling for music and rhythm, a sense of theater and something to say, he can turn out an interesting one. If in addition he has qualities such as humor, style, imagination, and the numerous other gifts every writer could use, he might even turn out a good one and with an understanding composer and a stimulating book writer, a composer is the one who writes the music, the book writer is the one who writes all the words in between the music. So he says, with an understanding composer and a stimulating book writer, the sky's the limit. I want to go back particularly to the first thing that he says that he received from Oscar Hammerstein. Content dictates form. I'm going to say that again. Content dictates form. One more time, burn this in your brain. It is one of the most important things you can learn as a writer, full stop. Content dictates form. Right. So what does that mean? Why is that important? Well, what it means is that, for example, if you look at the Lemony Snicket series of unfortunate events books, they were originally written making full advantage of the book form. And if you haven't read them, uh, they were written for young adults, for children. They, um, <laughs> they vary in quality. I do enjoy them. Uh, they can be a little formulaic. But I would suggest, if you want to study what he does, rather to flip through his books, because what he'll do is he'll make jokes that can only be made in book form. He does this best in a sort of an apocryphal book that he writes, which is, it's kind of his version of an appendix or like Tolkien's um, Cimmerillion it's an additional book that that hopefully helps explicate all the mysteries in the in the series that he wrote but you can read it on its own and it's called brilliantly it is called 
The Unauthorized Autobiography of Lemony Snicket. And he makes use of every part of the form because it's all about secret societies and things like that. There's actually a book jacket, a removable book jacket, on the inside of which is a reversible cover that has like the pony party, this sort of completely banal and innocuous and saccharine, you know, that, oh, there's this is a book just about happy little people that love ponies and have parties. And then the actual cover looks like it's brown paper wrapping and sort of typewritten notes, you know, saying confidential and things like that. And so when you pick it up, you feel like you're part of the mystery, like you've been handed this book of mysteries, this notebook that Lemony Snicket has put together. And it's it's full of, um, again, just sort of all these sort of visual jokes that you can't do if it's a podcast and you can't really translate into if it's on the stage, right? Even down to all of his books are beautifully bound and have a sense of nostalgia about them. They've got that wonderful unfinished edge to the side of the paper. And so again, when you receive it or when you have it on your bookshelf, as I do, there's this sense of a complete set of volumes of novels, of older sort of novels. And that is absolutely the milieu of his books. So in this case, the content of his books, which is all about sort of older, quirky sort of mystery that are all connected over these 13 books, you get even when you receive the book in your hand. Now, when they turned it into a movie with Jim Carrey, they didn't they didn't let content dictate form. The content of each of these books, they're incredibly episodic, but they do build on one another, hopefully rather like these lessons, which if you have not listened to the previous episode, I suggest you pause it here, go back Listen to those first because hopefully these lessons are scaffolded and are in an order to sort of guide you through, especially this first season. In future seasons, if you want to learn about rhyming poetry, listen to rhyming poetry. If you don't care, you don't need to tune in. Uh, But this particular season is going to be fairly structured. So, anyway, um, the difficulty when they were making the movie of Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events is they had the form and they weren't looking at what the content was and how the content was going to change the form. Each of the books is episodic. Each of the books is absolutely self-contained. And the first thing that the movie decided to do was, again, they sort of had a vote of no confidence and they took three of the books. And now granted, the first four and a half books of the series are incredibly repetitive it's very clear that Daniel Handler, who is the actual author and his nom de plume is Lemony Snicket, uh, that Daniel Handler was a little cynical. He didn't really have an overarching plot or an overarching big bad, if you know that term from serial TV, which uh, we can attribute again to Joss Whedon and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I did tell you I'd be mentioning Buffy quite a lot. Um he didn't so every book is kind of the same for the first the first 5 books and then at the end of book 5 you receive a really important 
piece of information. And then all the books that follow after have a really kind of thrilling plot, which again, I, I, I suggest you take comfort in that because allow your first four and a half pieces of storytelling at minimum to be kind of only okay. How great is that? But because they looked at this, the studio executives looked at it and said, "Uh, well, the first three books, the first four and a half books are really kind of meh. Let's just shove the first three books together and not look at what each one of them is adding to this story. We're not going to translate this story into film. We're just going to kind of shove it together and hope that people like it enough that we can cash in. Anyway, um, so they shoved it all together. And while Jim Carrey was great in it, and they kind of got the sense of quirkiness and the set design and things, it wasn't a cohesive whole. The content was not dictating the form. One of the things that's very strong in a series of unfortunate events is that the whole thing is supposedly being narrated by Lemony Snicket, that the author himself is trying to find out what happened to the Baudelaire children, right? That's the conceit of the entire story. And so it's very cool because throughout the books, every once in a while, Lemony Snicket will say, and I don't know, they were on a sinking they felt like they were on a sinking ship rather like how I am writing with my typewriter right now and trying to get water out of this canoe. And all of a sudden you've got this really exciting image of, oh, right, that the narrator is in real time and, and is going through adventures of his own that we're only getting glimpses into. That's an important part of this particular content. And so it needs to be an important part of the form. They had Jude Law in the movie have an occasional aside as Lemony Snicket as the narrator, but they kind of used him as just a narrator and not as a character who's integral or will become integral to the plot, even peripherally. I kind of don't want to give it away if you haven't read them, if you haven't seen the Netflix series, which I'm about to talk about. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very cool sort of layers within layers. So in the Netflix series though, they understood that content is going to dictate the form. And so this is a series of 13 books. He has written apocryphal information that all the fans have read. He himself, since writing these books, has tried to sort of retcon, frankly, those earlier four books and make them important to the remainder of the story. And so what they decided was, okay, each book needs to be its own movie, we're going to give two hours to almost every book. The, the 13th book, they only gave an hour to. It was probably the right decision, but, but that's the only outlier. And one of the very first things they do in the Netflix series, which understood the content and created the form around it. So they've still got a sort of quirky set. They keep the character of Lemony Snicket as a narrator, but they introduce Lemony Snicket immediately as as a character that we're going to get to know. And they translate several of the jokes that were in the book. They either leave it out if it's a joke you can only have in a book. For example, in, uh, oh gosh, in the Carnivorous Carnival, there's one where he's talking about deja vu. And it's it's the whole first page of this uh, chapter. And then you turn the page 
and it's the exact same page. So you get deja vu. You actually get it. In book six, the Ursat's elevator, um, there's a point when they fall down the elevator shaft. Sorry, spoilers. And uh, it says, and then it's like, and then they fell and you turn the page and it's two pages of blankness. Now you can't have those jokes if it's a filmed media. So again, because they knew they had to somehow get this content, they found the ways to translate the content into the form. So for us, again, content dictates form. As I said in the very first episode, I believe in the trailer episode, in musical theater, uh, and that I'm going to say musical theater, but when I say that, I mean musical theater, opera, hip hop, opera, uh, gosh, even into some degree plays with music, anything that's going to involve music, ballet, um, dance shows, and, and whatever else may be invented in the future. How exciting is that? But anything that uses music as the means to serve the story. In musical theater, people will burst out into song because they cannot contain their emotions anymore. Because whatever they're talking about is so big that to speak about it in a prosaic way would do the content a disservice. Prose would be the wrong form. Okay, so when we then think about the musicals that have done well. And uh, let's take a look, for example, at, at musicals that were still running on Broadway or were recently running on Broadway. And again, I'm recording this in 2020, July 2020. I am sweating on your behalf without any air conditioner on in July, New York City 2020. Um, we've got old standards such as the Phantom of the Opera. Obviously, the Phantom of the opera should be an opera. <laughs> this makes sense, right? And, uh, well, it wasn't running recently, but it ran for, what, 25 years? And I think it may still be running or was running on the West End while theater was still up. Um, shows like Les Miserables. And I love what the composers of Les Miserables said, which was they finished this epic, over thousand-page novel by Victor Hugo, which is a beast to get through, but well worth it if, if you've got the time. And if you're listening to this in real time, you're in a pandemic. Go, list, go and read Lem's Rob. Uh, but they finished reading it and went, that was the best opera I ever read. And they're not wrong. Again, Lem's Rob crosses, like what, 20, 30 years? And it's got revolution in it, and it's got death and suicide and prostitutes and prisoners who break their parole and questions of justice versus mercy. I mean, like, it's just freaking enormous. And, um, and it's sort of the only thing that could contain it is an opera, not just a musical, an opera. There's not going to be almost any time when we can stop and catch our breath in this thing. And it's it's interesting in the case of Lemmes Rob or in Phantom, but particularly Lemmes Rob, if you're interested in studying this particular text, there are multiple prose written movies that you could watch of Lemmes Rob, multiple versions, including one with Liam Neeson that came out uh, like a, a dozen years ago or so, 
And there's a very famous one from the 40s, I believe, with Charles Lawton. And even though, so the musical is what, three hours long, maybe three and a half, depending on on, on when you caught it. And also whether you're watching the, the quote unquote children's version, which you may have seen at a local high school, uh, which I have feelings about, but okay. Uh, <laughs> but Les Miserables, let's say it's three hours. Most of these movies are two hours. And these movies are still there. You can tell they're bursting at the seams. You can tell that they don't have enough time to contain everything that's in this novel. And frequently they will leave out key characters. If you know them as Rob, half of the movies leave out Eponine. The other half leave out Gavroche. They seem to think that the two characters are interchangeable. If you know them as a Rob, they're super not interchangeable. Um, but that's one of the common changes, for example. And then like the recent Liam Neeson one just kind of gives up. It, it The entire movie stops with so much more of the novel to go. It's really, really weird. But with the musical, you you feel swept along, but you also don't feel like it's straining at the seams. And I would suggest that verse drama, although it doesn't have music underneath it, is also really good for whenever your characters feel that they are in the middle of something huge and enormous. Now, that doesn't mean that your characters may actually be in the middle of something huge and enormous. They may be in the middle of incredibly low stakes, but they feel like the stakes are huge. And if you want to see an excellent example of this sort of juxtaposition used for comedy, 100% go check out the TV series Community by Dan Harmon. Uh, It's on a couple different streaming services as I speak this. And if you're going to watch only one episode, watch Introduction to Modern Warfare, which is in season one, which is sort of the easiest one to access. And they're going to use the form of an action-adventure, post-apocalyptic, sort of die-hard, Fury Road-esque type movie, but any sort of Terminator, things like that, any sort of movie like that. Um, But the stakes are ridiculously low. They are, it's about a community college. (laughs) And so the stakes are at the level of a community college. But all the characters feel that the stakes are ridiculously high. And if you enjoy that and you want to watch Community, and again, take comfort in the fact that in the first season, until they hit Modern Warfare, the show runners, the show creators and writers were not entirely sure what their content was and therefore what form they could get away with. And then what's going to be really fascinating, if you keep watching through in seasons two and three, they settle into a groove, which is common, right? So again, don't beat yourself up if you're just starting writing in this form or any form. It's all a learning curve. And then season four, Dan Harmon, the show creator, was removed because of various political things. That's fascinating to know, but I won't go into because this is not a community podcast. But they brought in showrunners who said, oh, you just want the form. You just want episodes that are 
like other forms. You want a puppet episode, so we'll do a puppet episode. You were into Doctor Who, so we'll do a Doctor Who episode. But what they didn't understand was that when community works, it's because the content dictates the form. One character is going through a crisis. The best way to explain that crisis is by using is by referencing My Dinner with Andre, which is a very weird movie, but that is the best way to explain what this character is going through. And so that's the form we're going to use because that's what the content is. All right. So content dictates form. So the first thing that I would ask you is not just, is this a play about kings and queens and I don't know, space giants. I'm watching Thor at at the moment. I'm doing a rewatch of Thor. Shh. Uh, give me that Marvel money. <laughs> anyway, uh, so it's not how big your characters actually are, but how big your characters feel. And so it's the same reason that I'm I'm not, for example, entirely convinced that Mean Girls, the Tina Fey written movie, which is based on a book, I'm not entirely convinced, even having seen only a few clips from the musical, that Mean Girls is a musical. I mean, it's it's set in a high school, right? And so, sure, again, a la Buffy, high school is hell. Or Mean Girls uh, makes the case that high school is a is the same thing as a safari and living in the wild. But in that case, again, I'm not sure if, if you're going to do that. Then I would much rather have it be something that uses music that sounds like a safari and not music that sounds like it was written for a boy band, right? Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Even though the musical is set in a high school and so, okay, all the kids are listening to pop music maybe, so let's make them all sound like pop stars, but that's not the metaphor. That's not how they feel. That's not the interior truth. And, and that's why, for me at least, Mean Girls doesn't entirely work. As opposed to, if you have the opportunity to, really, I would suggest to see more than to listen to Heathers, the musical of Heathers, which uh, you can probably find a a version on YouTube because it's been closed for a while, but bootlegs are up. We can talk another day about ticket prices on Broadway, which is a whole problem and which is a conversation that ought to be happening now since the whole system is shut down. I won't go into that. It's fine. I didn't tell you to go on YouTube and find a bootleg of Heather's, but go on YouTube and find a bootleg of Heather's. So Heather's the movie, some of you may know, right, is about sort of proto-emo kids in high school. Once again, high school is hell. In this case, high school is full of sociopaths who are literally going to blow the place up. And the music, when you listen to the musical of Heather's, it makes sense. It makes sense. It's weird and grungy and dirty, and it's it's appropriate. It's right. Okay, this particular podcast, and I said I was going to talk about musicals. Thank you for bearing with me. I'm hoping that some of these you can say, oh, yes, I know that. Oh, yes, I know that. Okay, yes, this makes sense. If you were to look, for example, therefore, I'm gonna we're going to look at Hamilton, because I'm presuming that many of you Googled Hamilton or put Hamilton into the search bar for a podcast, stumbled on this particular 
series. And uh, haha, now you're listening. Thank you so much. We're going to look briefly at Hamilton versus Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, both of which have, uh, they are really interesting, the same DNA, both of which are musicals. And so to begin with, it makes sense. The content is we're in one with Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. We're going to talk about the President Andrew Jackson, and (laughs) we're not going to pull any punches. We're going to show how awful he is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It makes sense that it's a musical or it's some sort of heightened form. Uh, I think this is something that would probably do very well in verse drama because this is a guy that was a huge racist and apparently was into some literally weird, bloody stuff that also involved sex. So like, this is an HBO series waiting to happen. Um, there you go. Content dictates form, right? Uh, and, and so it makes sense. It's a musical. Everything's sort of heightened. The stakes are high. And then we've got Hamilton, which is about the American revolution, about the founding fathers, uh, in particular about this one founding father who's an immigrant who did the American dream of pulling himself up by his bootstraps and who died before his time. So he's even got tragic elements. He's got tragic elements all throughout his life. He loses people that are really important to him. And again, he's in the middle of the American friggin' revolution. He's in the middle of the writing of the constitution. These are not small events. They're not small questions. So of course it makes sense that this should be a musical. Now, with Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, and perhaps you're someone who's going to love the soundtrack, um, I watched a little bit <clears throat> of a bootleg, and uh, I listened to the soundtrack, and the the music, so the, the idea for this was that the argument they were making was that Andrew Jackson was an emo kid, basically was a punk emo kid. And so the idea would be that all the music would be sort of punk and emo. And and that works, especially if you think of sort of the the screamy, but the the wonderful screamy melodicness of like my chemical romance. It even works, I think, if you think of something like Evanescence or Nightwish, which really is just opera, but with like incredibly heavy bass and overdriven guitar. But instead, it kind most except for the opening song, which is populism, yeah, yeah it doesn't really get the edge of punk music or emo music or any of the music that that sort of comes from a primal scream. And the other thing too is that I'm not sure that their metaphor was right, that they understood what their content was. I think if they had done Andrew Jackson, if he sees himself as emo, but all of his music is actually like overblown Scandinavian rock opera that would have read better. Uh, I'm thinking if, if you've seen not not the Eurovision, actual Eurovision, but the recent comedy and the Dan Stevens character plays a Russian who's sort of over the top uh, with this sort of, I mean, he's got lions and really hot dancers. <laughs> and, um, and Andrew Jackson, I think, is a bit more of a poser like that. Like he sees himself as being, I don't know, a rebel, but really he's creating the horrible racist establishment. He's helping to perpetuate the racist establishment that we are currently suffering from. Uh, He was a product of his own time. He's a product, unfortunately, of 
our nation. That is its own subject. This is not a political podcast. I'm going to try to stay away from that ish. Um, Hamilton, however, if you listen to how Lin-Manuel Miranda first introduced even his idea of back when it was going to be a mixtape and not necessarily a hip opera. But his first sentence is, I'm writing a mixtape about, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm writing a mixtape about the life of Alexander Hamilton, who's one of the founding fathers of the revolution, who caught beef with all the other founding fathers. And that means, A, it's big enough that, yes, it should be in some sort of heightened form, it should be in opera. It should be in verse. It needs to be big. It And again, it covers what? 30 years? Something like that? It's just a huge amount of time, which you're going to cover easier if there's a heightened style. Um, for whatever reason, it's, it's just easier to contain it. Also, people are willing to watch a three-hour musical. Um, so you give yourself that extra elbow room of an hour. So that all makes sense. It would not be the work of genius that it is, and I know I keep saying the word genius, deal with it. It is genius. Um, but it would not be the work of genius if he had written pop songs for all the founding fathers. It would not be a great piece of musical theater of opera if it were in, I mean, even something that sounds like, like opera or like Rodgers and Hammerstein, the sound of music, right? It would not sound right if it were uh, sort of the Broadway jazz sound. I mean, imagine if it sounded like Chicago, if if you know Chicago, Candor and Ebb, sort of 1920s blues music. None of those are right. The absolute right form for the content of someone who is argumentative and verbose is rap, and specifically is hip-hop which brings in the political element to begin with. The metaphor is correct for the content. The form is correct for the content. And I might take some flack for this, but if you're interested in seeing a different version of the Founding Fathers, do take a look at 1776, another musical which inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's apparently one of his favorites. It's about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It is played by almost an entirely male cast, usually an entirely white male cast. And I'm going to be honest, the music is fine. It's really not great music. It's not. And the most powerful parts of that particular musical are when they're speaking prose. So... Did they have the right form? I'm not convinced they did. Did Lin-Manuel Miranda have the right form? I'm positive he did. So when should you be writing verse? Because it sounds really, the way that I've been speaking, that I'm saying to you, really, you should be writing a musical. Well, I'll tell you, (laughs) I'll tell you how I began writing verse at any rate, and perhaps this will give you a little bit of insight. I, the first thing that I wrote the first piece of drama that I wrote in verse, because I'd been writing poetry prior to that, right? And I'd been writing musical lyrics and things of that ilk. But um, I was in grad school at Emerson in 2007 to 2009. 
and I had a friend who actually, her background was in opera. She wanted to direct more. Her name is Brenda Huggins. Do look her up. She's a great director and still directs opera as well as puppetry to this day. So Brenda wanted to direct more. And I had, I had already had a career prior to going to grad school. Um, in my career, I had been a writer-director. I am a writer-director, but I'd always directed my own work. And so I wanted to experiment and see what it would be like to write a piece and then just step back from the directing. And so this seemed to be symbiotic. And Brenda was saying to me, great, well, you know, we've got one more year of grad school. This was over the summer. How quickly can you write a play? <laughs> because we're going to need to cast it and start rehearsing pretty much in September, October. And so I said, well, what's going to help with that is if you tell me sort of what your favorite myths or stories are so that I have a blueprint for a plot so that I'm not just coming up with everything on its own. Um, also adapting fairy tales and myths and legends and, and sort of bringing them into, not into the modern day, but with a, a modern lens is just like my favorite thing in the world to do. So she mentioned immediately that one of her favorite <laughs> stories ever was Cupid and Psyche from The Golden Ass by Apelius, whose name I am probably butchering, which is uh, a collection of Latin stories, which may have had some Grecian origins, but they're, they're Roman myths. And the story of Cupid and Psyche, you may have heard of Cupid, right? He's not, in this case, the little baby boy with wings. He's a grown-ass man. Thank you very much. Uh, with wings. <laughs> and it's about himself, who is the god of love, and the girl that he ends up marrying, Psyche. And her name means a couple different things. It's where we get the word psychology. So it has to do with the mind. It has to do with reason. It has to do with the soul. And and this happens to be one of my favorite stories as well. I'm not going to spoil it for you in this particular podcast. Although I will be using my play Cupid and Psyche to show you honestly some of the pitfalls you might run into, to show you where I made mistakes. So you can keep an ear out for that. And if you want to read the bad Cordo version or a version, you can go on Amazon and there is a copy of the bad Cordo there that you can read. There also is honestly the the true, <laughs> the workshop version that you can Google on YouTube. So you can sort of see my very, 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 very first attempts at writing verse and feel free to critique it and to learn from it because I sure did. Anyway, so when she said Cupid and Psyche, I was like, well, awesome. Okay, in that case, I have to write you an opera because this particular piece is about the god of love and the gods of death, and it's about marriage, and it's about sex, and it's about very difficult mothers. And, oh, I mean, who knows what else is going to be in it, but this is not a small story. This is this is an opera. This is going to be big. And she looked me in the eye and she said, I am not directing an opera, Emily. And it was purely for logistic reasons, which is she did not want, she didn't want to have to rehearse in singers and musicians. Because when you're doing an opera or a musical, you're really directing three different shows simultaneously. You're directing an opera, you're directing a concert, and you're directing a dance show. Well, actually, no, I guess four. And then in the middle of there, there's also a play. So there's there's a lot to rehearse. And that's why if you go and you see a high school musical, you should just why 
the acting is a little under-rehearsed, where the dance and the music and the, the pit orchestra might be quite good. Um, that, again, is its own problem and might be addressed at another time. But in this case, so she said, no, I do not write an opera. I do not want to rehearse an opera. I want to rehearse a play. And so I said, okay, well, in that case, it has to be in verse drama. And she looked at me and she said, well, can you write in verse? And I was like, well, we're going to find out. Uh, and I felt fairly confident, as I imagine many of you do. I'm, I'm going to guess, and I would love to know, please tell me what your backgrounds are in the comments. Please tell me what hats you wear in the theater and what you've studied. And also, please, uh, I've been given a very Eurocentric education, which is not unusual in uh, for an American theater artist. I would love to know what I don't know. So please point me towards what I need to research. Uh, I'm a Slytherin, for those of you who know your Harry Potter, but I've got Ravenclaw ascending. Anyway, so by that point, I had spent about 10 years directing Shakespeare and acting in Shakespeare and studying Shakespeare. So I was like, I've got a handle on this. I know how to count to 10. I can do this. Little did I know, <laughs> little did I know that writing verse drama is so much more than that. Hello, this is Emily popping in here to take a minute to tell you about Turn to Flesh Productions. Turn to Flesh is a New York City theater company that develops new plays and heightened text with vibrant roles for women and those underrepresented in classical art. So basically, we create new Shakespeare shows for everybody that Shakespeare didn't write for. Since our founding in 2013, we've given various levels of development space to over 50 plays through playwriting workshops, such as our monthly Muse program, or through our in-person classes, through to staged readings of full works, and even workshop productions and world premieres of entire shows. We love to feature actors of all ages, abilities, shapes and sizes, ethnicities, and orientations, usually swinging swords and falling in love and having epic battles or just being terribly clever, frequently, although not always, speaking in blank verse. Now, in 2020, Turn to Flesh is excited to begin working internationally over audio programming and workshops and productions held via digital platforms like Zoom. And we'd like to hear from you. You can find us on all social medias at Turn to Flesh and keep up with the latest events, such as our monthly Muse program, where playwrights bring in the first draft of their new scenes and actors in body and give feedback. Right now, the Muse program is also being held virtually over Zoom. I mean, you can, from your own living room, on your laptop, watch a new Shakespeare play get written and workshopped right before your eyes. You might even have your own piece workshopped. You might be the new Burbage playing in the new Shakespeare's show. That's pretty cool. So make sure to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Turn to Flesh and join the Turn to Flesh community. If you want to do more, you can support us by visiting turntoflesh.org and hitting that donate button. Or if you want to book a one-on-one -on -one session with me, Emily C.A. Snyder, make sure to listen to the end of the podcast for more information. Right. Back to the show. Welcome back. So in this next section, we're going to take a look once more at some examples 
of pieces that are in poetry or in prose and seeing how the prosaic it tends to stay fairly prosaic, fairly workaday, whereas the poetical tends to, in fact, be poetical. And uh, when the story wants to be in one or wants to be in the other. In this section, as always, we will have links in the show notes. And I highly recommend that you read along so that you can see where the line endings are or see where the punctuation is for the prose but that you follow along. If you prefer to listen and then go back and look at it, you're more than welcome to. So the first piece of text that we're going to be looking at in this section is by Stuart Spencer, who you may know since he wrote a little book on playwriting called The Playwright's Guidebook, which has done uh, very well and is used in many different universities. Spencer himself is a teacher Uh, a novelist, and he has written a few plays, including one play in verse. We will link uh, to his play, and we will also provide just the little bit of text that we are critiquing uh, for you. This is what he's written about it. It's called Go to Ground, a play about a fox hunt. Uh, Three men, three women, open staging, and his description goes, a play of high style, dark secrets, and rich comedy. Oliver, the uber-prodigal son, returns to his family home intent on finally behaving himself and joining the traditional Thanksgiving fox hunt, but his family wants nothing to do with him. And to the memory of the previous evening, dark night of the soul in New York City keeps intruding on Oliver, plans to remake his life. Part modern urban speak, part iambic pentameter, part human part horse. This play is a wild ride of great theatricality and serious fun. So if you take a a quick look at his piece, and in some ways, the cool thing about verse drama is you can look at it as a piece of art. You can scan your eye over it and see what parts are in verse and what parts are in prose, surely by formatting. This play, Go to Ground, a play about a fox hunt, um, has enough significant pieces that are broken up into verse that we can call it a verse play, but it is not entirely in verse. What we're going to be critiquing is not the way that he goes from prose to poetry. We'll be doing that in a little bit with two other plays, but rather asking whether two of his parts, which are in verse, whether they're both actually verse or if one of them actually is in prose that he cut at every 10 syllables. I suggest that he fell into the trap of cutting at 10 syllables when it's actually very good prose, but not so much poetry. For this particular reading, however, I'm going to read it more according to his punctuation, this beginning part. So I'm going to read it as if it's prose. And when we get to the line endings and scansion, you'll you'll hear why. I may do a few lines that respect the verse as he wrote it, just so you can hear the difference. Well, we'll see how this goes. I've never actually been the one to read these words aloud. So this is very exciting, very new. Once again, this is Stuart Spencer, his iambic pentameter play, as he calls it, Go to Ground. And it begins, this This is the very first page, act one, scene one. Oliver appears, Natalie dressed, speaking to us. And this is all going to be a soliloquy, which again is direct address to the audience, not 
speaking to anyone else on stage necessarily, although it looks like there are meant to be people who come on stage when he speaks about them, but he's speaking to us. And Oliver speaks in poetry. I'll be reading it in prose. Go to Ground, a play about a fox hunt. How many of you ride a horse? Uh, Not many. Not to worry. Fortunately, we're prepared to give a demonstration for the uninitiated. Horses go at different speeds. We call them gates. My family has agreed to show you what they look like so that you can tell a gallop from a trot. My mother, Joy. As you can see, a simple walk. Her back is straight but not inflexible. Her shoulders are relaxed, the elbows in and loosely in her hands, the reins. You never want to grip the reins. I don't know why. When standing still, the horse will often cock its foot. It's normal. The horse is fine. So, moving on. My brother, Tony. This is called a trot which means that Tony has to post. He's posting now. Okay, that's it. It never fails. And this is called a canter. That's my father, by the way. You notice how he's rolling with the horse's gait. You never want to fight the horse's gait. That's very bad. The horse and rider should be one, like so. He's very good. Okay, that's fine. Hey, Dad. Hey, Dad. That's fine. Appreciate it. Now, the final gait will be the gallop. Are you set? Oh, sorry, Caitlin. Sister, sorry, set, then go. The gallop's not for novices. It's very fast as you can... Oh, don't try this at home. I think we got the point. Hello? And so that's it, the basics, all you really need to know. Although there is one thing. It's me, you see, just so you understand. And then everyone else interrupts him. Uh, Saying things like, Oliver, hey, come on, they'll see for themselves. And he comes back in speaking... In that case, may I offer you, go to ground, a play about a fox hunt. All right. So the purpose of this particular piece of text, which again is, it is written in poetry. I spoke it in prose. I think I may actually take a moment and and speak some of this as he wrote it in poetry for you. So you can hear the difference. It's pretty straightforward. There's no heightened language. There's no heightened emotion. It's expositional. Now, if you remember from the previous episode, though, the opening song for Hamilton is all exposition as well, and that's in verse, right? How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore, and a Scotsman dropped in a forgotten unity? Yeah, it goes on. How can they get away with an exposition song and go to ground, essentially is not allowed to get away with a spoken exposition song? Um, well, the <laughs> it's a great question. I, there are no stakes in this particular piece, right? The content is just telling us about canting. Uh, sorry, I'm not a, a, a writer myself. Is about posting, trotting, um, walking at a canter, walking, galloping, etc. And I think if the author had used heightened language, if he had let us know what Oliver feels about each of these, then it should be in verse. But because he's just giving us information, that's prose. And he's written it in a prosaic way. Again, listen to the first few words of Hamilton. How does a bastard? Okay, so by the fourth word, because uh, the way that it's presented, content dictates form, we are narrated, rather like the Lemony Snicket books, we have a narrator. 
we have a point of view when we are watching Hamilton. It's written very much like Amadeus, if you know the play or the fantastic movie. And um, I, I feel like perhaps this podcast is going to be nothing but telling you what to watch next on Netflix and Hulu and whatever you're streaming on. Uh, watch Amadeus. Oh my gosh. Incredible movie. Incredible performances. F. Murray Abraham is Salieri. Ah, it's so good. It is so good. And perhaps we can, if I can get a copy of that script, I would love to look at it and see if it's, if there are sections which are secretly in verse and the playwright might not even realized it. Uh, but, but so we've got a narrator in, in Aaron Burr, the guy who spoilers, if you don't know your history, he's the fellow who kills Hamilton by the end. It's not really a spoiler. That's entirely how the opening song ends is Aaron Burr saying, and I'm the damn fool who shot him. But do you hear immediately the language is charged with what Aaron Burr thinks about Hamilton. This is not just, oh, look at what Hamilton did. Once upon a time, there was a guy, he grew up in the Caribbean, da, 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 da. No, we are immediately given emotion about the exposition. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in a forgotten part of the Caribbean by providence impoverished in squalor, grow up to be a hero and a scholar. And do you hear the language that's chosen? If you remember, the third tenet of Sondheim is specificity, right? God is in the details. We immediately know what Burr thinks about Hamilton. We know the musical is called Hamilton. We already know that we are being invited to question everything we're seeing. We have an unreliable narrator. We have a narrator with a point of view. And then we get the twist at the end of this exposition song, which does more than exposition because it reveals to us the interior heart of these characters, particularly Burr and Hamilton. But then listen again to the very beginning of Go to Ground, which again is written in verse, but doesn't have a point of view. So the beginning again is Go to Ground, a play about a fox hunt. How many of you ride a horse? Not many. Not to worry. Fortunately, we're prepared, prepared to give a demonstration for the uninitiated. There, uh, the lovely thing about verse is you can get away with being poetic. That's the whole point of writing in poetry. You can get away with um, Oliver perhaps saying, oh gosh, I don't know. How many of you have ever clung onto the back of a horse? How many of you have ever felt the freedom of a man attached to a horse, feeling like a centaur? You, you know what I'm saying? There's no point of view here. Now, the other thing that I want you to hear, because I, I read it in prose, I want you to hear the actual poetry, and this will set you up for our next uh, for our next session, our next lesson which will invariably be about the ever-tantalized line endings and scansion, eventually scansion. This is how it's written. I'm going to, as usual, for the litmus test, take a breath at the end of every line ending. Wherever he put a line break, that's where I'm going to take a breath. So I'm going to read the first few sentences for you as prose, and then I'll read those same few sentences for you the way he wrote them. All right. This is the prose version again. Go to ground, a play about a fox hunt. How many of you ride a horse? Not many, not to worry. 
Fortunately, we're prepared to give a demonstration for the uninitiated. All right, that's the prose version. Here's how he wrote his poetry. Go to ground to play about a fox hunt. How many of you ride a horse? Not many. Not to worry, fortunately, we're prepared to give a demonstration for the uninitiated. So, (laughs) didn't really pass the litmus test there. In future episodes, and for those of you who may have already uh, studied a bit of how to perform Shakespeare, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to do a different litmus test on it. There are different ways that you can perform a line ending. You can lift the end of the line. You can lean into the end of the line. We're going to have an entire episode about it. Uh, Here's a little foretaste. I'm going to try, instead of taking a breath at the end, to maybe elongate the sounds, to try to justify his line endings, basically. You ready? Here we go. Go to ground to play about a fox hunt. How many of you ride a horse? Not many. Not to worry. Fortunately, we're prepared to give a demonstration for the uninitiated. Horses go at different speeds. We call them gates. My family has agreed to show you what they look like so that you can tell a gallop from a trot. Sorry, I was not able to justify what they look like as having a break between look and like. Uh, Okay, but now I'm getting into the next lesson. So we're going to take a moment. We're going to scroll down. If you're on the PDF, what we just read was page five. We're now going to scroll down and take a look at a monologue by the character called Ford. This is page 29 of the PDF. Again, we'll make sure that the link is in the show notes. Um, I think I'm going to read it. I'm going to do my best to justify all his line ending. So I'm going to read it as poetry. Again, I haven't read this out loud. So I'm fascinated. The litmus test in this particular case is to see what it evokes from myself as an actor from the inside. But it looks like from a a quick glance at this particular monologue that he leans a little bit more into the poetry, that he justifies why this character is suddenly going to burst into poetry. So let's take a listen. All right. So the character of Ford, page 29, Stuart Spencer's Go to Ground. No, it can't. You haven't got a clue. This horse is half a ton of muscle, bone, and a hoof. And when it hears the hounds give tongue, that half a ton starts moving twice as fast as you could ever think of running. And it doesn't want to stop. It loves to run. That's all it really loves. And you're a puny little flea with only one thing in your favor. That's persuasion. Nothing else. There's not a chance in hell that you or anyone is strong enough to stop a thousand pounds of horse from running where it wants and jumping what it likes. The only thing you've got is what you know, and you know nothing. You can hilltop it if you like. Okay. So uh, if I were to critique this, again, there are a couple line endings that were a little difficult to justify. But even so, actually, some of the irregular line endings offered me some interesting options. You can hear that To begin with, we've got the repetition of language, pounds of horse, right? We're using much more visceral words, muscle, bone, hoof, puny little flea. We're using metaphors. We're using poetic language. And although, to be quite frank, I have not read this play all the way through, so I don't know who Ford is, but but Ford 100% has 
a bond with horses. He has a point of view, and he has a point of view about the guy he's talking to. Yes, this is verse. This ought to be in verse. Again, I have some notes about where he ended some of the lines as to whether that's where he really meant to end them or not. But this particular piece ought to be in poetry. So I hope you could sort of hear the difference between two pieces that were both written in verse, that is written with line endings, but one of them was prosaic and one of them was poetic. Hello, Emily popping in between her own show to tell you a little bit about Patreon. Patreon is a great way to support artists that you love, to help them create the content that you love, like Hamlet to Hamilton. Signing up will get you perks such as early access to episodes, extra bonus episodes, access to the super secret Facebook group, and it can also get you perks like critiques of your own verse or one-on-one coaching sessions. You can sign up over on patreon.com backslash Hamlet to Hamilton. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash Hamlet to Hamilton. Or if you can't do that right now, give us a like, a share, a great review on Apple Podcast. All of that goes a really long way to helping us keep this educational content free and on the air for you and yours to learn about verse drama. And to sign off in typical versical form. Enough with this ad. Let's get back to the norm. So we just listened to a new verse play that was written more or less entirely in poetry uh, with argument that some of it might have been happier in prose and then some of it might have been happier in poetry because the content, again, should dictate the form. So now we're going to transition into looking at two different pieces where the content did dictate the form and what it's like to move a scene from prose into poetry. The first one will be from a new verse play and the second one will be from Shakespeare. As always, links or the text itself, links to the text, will be in the description. Feel free to follow along or feel free to listen first and then follow along. So keeping with this, I want to start looking at comedies. And I'm using examples where the stakes are fairly low. The previous one is about love of horses, right? Or good horsemanship. And the stakes in that may not be considered as high as whether or not we have an American Revolution or whether Hamlet kills his uncle. Like It it may seem lower, but again, the important thing is that we break into verse when the stakes are high for the person speaking. So this is going to be an example from my comedy, The Merry Widows of Windsor, which is a sequel to Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor. In this particular case, I'm not going to encourage you to go read The Merry Wives of Windsor by Shakespeare. It is not a good play, which, I mean, again, if you're having a bad day, maybe go read The Merry Wives of Shakespeare, uh, The Merry Wives of Shakespeare, Merry, Merry Wives of Windsor and feel better about yourself. Um, Mary Wives notoriously was apparently written in about two weeks. What happened was uh, Shakespeare had written a character of Falstaff, who's this sort of larger-than-life uh, glutton and coward and a very funny clown that became incredibly popular and was in several of his history plays, and most notably in Henry IV, Part One and Two. 
And apparently, Queen Elizabeth loved the character of Sir John Falstaff so much that she ordered Shakespeare to write fan fiction and wanted to see Falstaff fall in love. And uh, since she basically controlled what she streamed in her own court, uh, Shakespeare, the So the Story Goes, wrote the story in two weeks. And boy, can you tell, it is it is not a good play. Interestingly, the majority of it is in prose. It's it's a lot faster and easier to write in prose because you kind of just spit draft. I can talk about spit draft another time. You just kind of throw words out there. You're not going to be as worried about meter coming up with imagery, et cetera, et cetera. But the American Shakespeare Center had a call out for plays and conversations with Shakespeare's plays. One of them was The Merry Wives of Windsor. And I thought, well, the heck with it. I can't ruin his play if I write a play in response to it. And I can only improve this rather misogynistic play that he wrote uh, by writing What Happens When the Merry Wives Become the Merry Widows. So I use several of his same characters, and uh, most notably, the, the two wives are now the two widows. One of them is the character of Alice Ford. And in the original, all you need to know is that her husband <sighs> was jealous and controlling, and it's supposed to be funny. Mm. Uh, and so this tries to, to, to rectify that. So as far as Alice Ford knows, her husband is dead. And because she is one of the wealthier women in town, and because this is set back around the reign of Henry IV, Henry V, in the English tradition, naturally having a woman of independent wealth cannot possibly be allowed to happen. So in the previous scene, which is entirely prose, there's a nosy old man who's sort of important in the town who in prose finds Alice Ford, tells her, okay, uh, it seems that a bastard son of Henry V is wandering around. Because of all these wars, we essentially need tourism in the town. You're wealthy. Go find this son, seduce him, marry him, keep his money in town, and help sort of restore the town of Windsor. So in, in some ways, this is really rather dumb, right? But the stakes for Alice are very high because she finally got her freedom after this lifetime of living with a guy who is controlling and manipulative and gaslighting and all sorts of different things. So I'm going to read to you a little bit of what Justice Shallow says right before he exits the scene. And then I'm interested if you can hear the difference of when it switches from prose to poetry. All right. Matter of fact, I'll back it up a little bit more because I do introduce the poetry with a rhyming couplet, and we'll go over the uses of rhyming couplets in another episode. But for example, we'll start here. Justice Shallow, old dude in town talking to Alice and saying, Now, when there were no bastard prince as the highest man in Windsor, I steeled myself to set myself on you. But now I am relieved, for though when I was young, I was a roistered doister with the rest, eh, eh? and I've had seven daughters by twice as many wives, no wife of my own, you understand, for I have never married. But as I say, where are my spectacles? Where are they, Jane? Confound it all. And a young woman named Jane hands them over, and he picks up and he says, well, well, I asked you, girl, to test you. But as I say, it is your civic duty 
Alice Ford, to marry with the highest man in town and give your coffers back unto the state. We all depend on you. "'Twas I, tis he, the deed must needs be done, for you must go and woo King Henry's bastard son. Farewell. And off he goes. And Alice turns and in soliloquy, so speaking to the audience, she says, Oh, the arrogance of power. I had thought, once Frank was in the ground, that my wealth, my will, my life and flesh were mine, but now I see. Although my husband's dead, he still hath hold on me. Or so this ancient man believes to him, the contents of my person and my purse were ever for the public use, not mine. Through Windsor, all my measurements are known. My body and my books are by their figures weighed. And so far as I have power, tis in my pocketbook. Well then, why not use the power I possess? Is not so bad a thing to marry with a king? You are the bastard son of one, some thirty, twenty years my junior. Ooh, how will that fadge? To have an infant in my bed who might have been, in other circumstance, an infant at the breast? And yet many an older man will leer and grope a woman half his age and be applauded for it. So should not I, who am not so old, but that my appetite hath ripened. Indeed, upon his death, I think it doubled. Wherefore, should I deny my baser cravings, which till now were kept in holy check, and take unto myself a lusty youth some eighteen years of age, and King Harry's son beside, I'll do it. Although my soul rebel against the act, tis for the civic good, I'll do him. <laughs> okay, so... So that's that's her speech. And I think you probably could feel, because it, it, it starts with some pretty strong meter, and, and then I'll be talking about, I tend to use a lot of white space, which we'll be talking about uh, later, as well as asides and um, reversals and all sorts of different things that we'll talk about. And I will leave this particular portion in the show notes, but you can read the entire play over on New Play Exchange this is The Merry Widows of Windsor uh, by yours truly, Emily C.A. Snyder. But I think you could probably hear the difference between poetry and prose. And while the stakes were high for Justice Shallow, um, insofar as like he wants tourism in the town and he wants Alice to do these things, that's also his every day. He tells people every day what to do. There's no reason for him to be in verse. Whereas Alice, who up to this point, even though she's actually had some long speeches to other people, has been almost entirely in prose. Because again, it's just been another day for her. This is when she first bursts into verse. I, I have, would have to look at the play again to see if this is the first instance of verse. It might be. And it's because all of a sudden she, she's stuck again. It wasn't just her husband. And yet at the same time, the thing that's being offered her, well, so, I mean, like the stakes are not, the stakes are not the end of the world, but they're the end of the world for her. And this is a comedy. This particular play I would suggest is one of those problem play comedies because it does deal uh, with toxic relationships, you know, like comedies do. But I just wanted to give you an example of when you would burst into verse from a modern point of view. If you're willing to bear with me, I'd like to conclude perhaps uh, 
with the way that Shakespeare will burst into verse, burst into essentially spoken singing. And once again, we're going to take a look at Hamlet. Once again, we're actually going to look at Act 2, Scene 2. This is at the very, very, very end of that just absurdly long scene. And the things that you need to know, again, rather like the last piece that you heard. Now, this is a drama, right? Uh, Although there's actually a lot of comedy in Hamlet, but for our purposes at the moment, we're back into drama. We're away from comedy. Hamlet's two college buddies and his girlfriend's dad are trying to basically trick Hamlet throughout this scene and get Hamlet to explain why he's acting so moody. Basically, they keep going like, why are you emo? Why are you so emo? Um, And I mean, Hamlet's like, well, my uncle is sleeping with my mom and my uncle is my dad's brother and life sucks. Why do you not think I'm emo? Uh, To, you know, to give you the definitive Sparks Notes version of, of Hamlet. So what they've done is they essentially brought Hamlet Renaissance Netflix, aka they've hired players, that is actors, to come and to play a show for them. And so we've already been in and out of verse a lot. We've done uh, a lot of verse at heightened emotion, but also verse whenever the king and queen are around. We've gone into prose a lot whenever it's a lower class character or whenever Hamlet's just having a conversation, or frankly, when Hamlet is like, the only way to say it is dicking around with his girlfriend's dad, who's a total prick. Girlfriend's dad's name is Polonius. And we're going to be picking up with Hamlet speaking. So the people who are there are the actors, Polonius, that's the dad of Hamlet's girlfriend, kind of ex-girlfriend. It, it's the relationship status is complicated on Facebook. And uh, and Hamlet's two friends. And again, I think you'll hear, you'll sort of hear it when the the beat drops of when we're suddenly from prose into poetry. And I think you're going to feel again the reason why you're going to get that sensation of, and now I need to burst out. It is not enough to just be clever with language and prose. I need to burst out. All right. So act two, scene two. The actors of Hamlet, the actors have just finished sort of doing their highlights of one of Hamlet's favorite plays. And Polonius says to the actors, pray you no more. And Hamlet says, tis well, I'll have thee speak out the rest soon. Good, my lord, will you see the players well bestowed? Do you hear? Let them be well used, for they are the abstract and brief chronicles of the time. After your death? You were better have a bad epitaph than their ill report while you live. Polonius says, My lord, I will use them according to their desert. Hamlet responds, God's bodkins, man, much better. Use every man after his desert, and who should escape whipping? Use them after your own honor and dignity. The less they deserve, the more merit is in your bounty. Take them in. And Polonius says, Come, sirs. And Hamlet, calling out to the actress, says, follow him, friends. Or actually, that's to his college buddies. Follow him, friends. We'll hear a play tomorrow. But then he grabs one of the actors and says, uh, dost thou hear me, old friend? Can you play the murder of Gonzago? And the actor says, aye, my lord. And Hamlet says, we'll have it tomorrow night. Uh, you could, 
before a need. Study a speech of some dozen or 16 lines, which I would sit down and insert in it, could you not? And the actor says, I am my lord. And Hamlet says, very well, follow that lord. And Jack, look you, mock him not. The first player leaves. Hamlet turns again to his friends who have not left and says, my good friends, I'll leave you till night. You are welcome to Elsinore. And one of his friends says, good my lord. And Hamlet says, I so, God be with ye. And off his friends go. And Hamlet continues speaking. Now I am alone. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing. For Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba, that he should weep for her? What would he do, had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I, a dull and muddy-meddled rascal, peak like John of Dreams and unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing, no, not for a king, upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain, breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face, tweaks me by the nose, give me the lie in the throat as deep as to the lungs. Who does me this, huh? Swoons, I should take it, for it cannot be, but I am pigeon-livered, and lack gall to make oppression bitter, or ere this, I should have fatted all the region's kites with this slave's awful, bloody, body, villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain. Oh, vengeance. Oh, I. What an ass am I? Okay. <laughs> So, and actually, then the soliloquy goes on. It It is an amazing soliloquy. It's almost towards the end. Definitely give it a listen if you have if you never have before. Give it a read. Read it out loud yourself. Take a, just a practice. Take a breath or a long gait or lift or somehow give the end of the line a little bit of extra oomph and uh, see how it affects you, especially when you get to like, you know, bloody body, villain, remorseless, treacherous, lecherous. It's it reminds you, doesn't it, of bastard orphan, a son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped. I mean, like, <sighs> you can just hear the verse. You can feel the verse. And everything that came before it, right? It was plot. It was moving it along. We had to get people off the stage. It took us a little while to get rid of our questionable college buddies. You know, but but it was all work a day. There was no reason to like have a definitive point of view about it that required heightened language. Whereas, and you, I, I hope you felt the, the beat drop on that first line of poetry, which is now I am alone. I mean, you kind of can only justify that if you're speaking in verse, because if you're walking around muttering that to yourself, uh, well, well, first of all, I hope you're wearing a cape because that would be appropriate. 
content dictates form. Um, but generally, we don't wander around and go, now I am alone, unless like there's kind of drama involved. So I hope that this particular piece has helped you as you're thinking about whatever your own story is, thinking about your characters, thinking about where their heightened emotion is or where the stakes are really high, and also asking yourself, are the stakes high? Are the stakes important? Is this the end of the world for your character? Do they need to burst out into verse? Also, is the content of your play, is it going to sound silly? It, it Does the world of your play allow for you to break out into heightened language? And if it does, then uh, keep listening, friends, and start taking notes and start start playing with, with poetry as a dramatic form, as a storytelling narrative form. And, and if you're realizing, no, the stakes are, are personal, but like maybe no one really expresses their emotion or everyone's using subtext. And we'll talk about text versus subtext. Some people say there's no subtext in Shakespeare. Yes and no. And, and again, if you want to look that up and, and get give yourself a gold star. And I hope you're giving yourself gold stars. Drop yourself a gold star for every every term you already know in the comments. I would love to see that. It is healthy, I think, to uh, to boost your ego, particularly when you're in the middle of trying to do something that can be uh, exciting and scared to bring us right back to the man who talked about finishing a hat. That concludes things for this episode, Content Dictates Form. In this episode, what we went over was Sondheim, by way of Oscar Hammerstein II's idea, that content dictates form, that basically what your story is about is going to dictate how you tell your story. So to our question of what ought to be told in verse, well, it's whenever the stakes are high, personally, for your characters or whenever the stakes of the world are so big that you need a little bit more elbow room. You need something a little bit more operatic, perhaps. But perhaps you don't want to write an opera, so write a verse play instead. It doesn't always have to be about kings and queens. It just needs to be emotionally big. We also went over various different forms, a lot of musicals, and how they either did very well with the form, or perhaps fell a little bit short. Then we looked at the modern playwright Stuart Spencer, who wrote in poetry and prose, but we looked at his verse and asked whether it was better suited as verse or better suited as prose. And one of his pieces was better suited as prose. Um, You could tell because of the way that the cadence went, or rather the lack of cadence, and uh, that the other one had a bit more poetry, had a bit more oomph, had a bit more emotion. And so it felt proper that it was in verse. Then we looked at two other pieces, one of mine and one of Shakespeare's, and how those pieces moved purposely from prose into poetry. That when it was workaday, we were in prose, the content was workaday, so the form was workaday. And when the characters felt an outburst of emotion, all of a sudden they went into verse. Now, obviously there are other reasons to use verse that I didn't go into. If you want some extra homework, I highly suggest that you take a look at As You Like It by Shakespeare, because rather like we talked about in the previous episode, he 
actually has his characters of the, and we didn't go over this, but here's a little bonus for you. He has his characters who are talking to each other and they're all in prose and it's lovely. And then in comes the evil Duke and all of a sudden they're in verse. And it's not so much an outburst of emotion as it is suddenly though, it's signaling a change. Suddenly though, they have to be very proper and very serious. And that's why they go into verse. But again, the content dictated the form. So if you want some extra homework, go ahead and take a look at that. The regular homework today is just to look at, if you're a writer, to look at your own story and to say, is this part really verse? Is this part really prose? And if you are not a writer, uh, maybe give a thought to what would you put in verse? What would be something that would cause you to burst into verse? And in the meantime, I will leave you with a little bit more of Little Red Riding Hood from Into the Woods by our own Stephen Sondheim, and that I hope that now you know things now, many valuable things that you hadn't known before. Hamlet to Hamilton is a special project of Turn to Flesh Productions Audio Division. Turn to Flesh is a theater company in New York City that develops new plays in heightened text with vibrant roles for women and those underrepresented in classical art. In other words, we create new Shakespeare plays for everybody Shakespeare didn't write for. Hamlet to Hamilton is hosted by Emily C.A. Snyder, with audio engineering and sound design by Colin Kovarik, and original music by Taylor Benson. Special thanks to Esther Williamson for transcripts. To learn more about us or to support the podcast, visit hamlettohamilton.com or sign up to become a monthly patron by visiting patreon.com backslash hamlettohamilton. Other ways to support include leaving us a great review on Apple Podcasts or spreading the word about us with the hashtag hamlettohamilton or h2h using the numeral two in between. Are you a verse playwright, an educator, an actor, an interdimensional space traveler with a love of blank verse. Well, we want to hear from you. You can join the Turn to Flesh community and the community of Hamlet to Hamilton by finding us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram at Hamlet to Hamilton or at Turn to Flesh. Thank you for joining us, dear friends, for all things true, good, beautiful, and frequently in verse.